0: word I invite you to turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible you can use one of ours which you'll find under one of the chairs in front of you and we will be on page 774. Jonah chapter 1. This morning we're not uh, staying in Jonah chapter 1 for very long. We're actually looking at the last verse of chapter 1 into chapter 2 verse 9. And that last verse that we're going to look at includes this phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord. And that is the great theme of our message this morning as well as really next week. And um, what's interesting is w- at least one professor in, uh, of a seminary and others have picked up on this have said that's really the, the key verse of the whole Bible. You find in this obscure book, salvation belongs to the Lord. And yet uh, that is really the line that, is, that holds the Bible together. And as I thought about that, uh, I thought about uh, what in many ways is the great foolishness and even silliness uh, that has been a part of the world's life uh, uh, the last 24 hours of this prediction of uh, the, the end of the world. And uh, just to be frank, there's nothing inherently heretical about saying a date or a time, but it is incredibly foolish uh, since Jesus is the one who says uh, we cannot know. And as Christians, uh, if we really believe that uh, we can't know uh, the, the day or the time or the hour. If we cannot know when it is Christ is going to come back, uh, then there's a sense in which it really is foolishness to us uh, to hear this man speak and uh, to see his followers with signs and billboards. And yet, frankly, there is also something tragic about that as well. Because when you hear the message uh, that this man has given, when you hear uh, his call to repent and flee from the wrath to come, what you find is a man who is missing in every way Jesus Christ. Uh, you have in Harold Camping one who, who began as a rock-solid teacher of God's Word, someone who 20, 30 years ago would have even been welcome in this pulpit to explain the Scriptures, and yet somewhere along the way he has lost the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has lost the very message and means by which people can escape the real judgment that is one day coming. And more than just uh, creating a mockery of the church, of the gospel, when we try and share the truth, you also have this morning people that are surely uh, ashamed of themselves, who are hurting for being deceived and duped, and who frankly will probably walk away from Christianity forever, and anything that resembles Christianity, unless the Lord himself intervenes. And so this morning as we think about the true message of salvation, about how it is Jesus Christ who saves, I would not only want you to have your own heart warmed to that if you are a believer, but I also want to have your, your mind and your heart so gripped that you become bold with that message. I cannot help but wonder how many opportunities were lost by real Christians when they heard the chatter and the conversation about this man and his message, when they could have stepped in and said, you know, he's half right, let me tell you the rest of the story. Let me actually open up God's word and show you what the judgment will be like and, and the one who actually took that judgment for us and in whom we can be saved, Jesus Christ. So this morning, this is what we want to see, that salvation belongs to the Lord. And we want to do that by picking up uh, where we have already read in the book of Jonah as we continue this series and press on into chapter 2. I want to begin in verse 14. Jonah is on the boat. He's running from God. The sailors are there. And these sailors, therefore, called out to the Lord, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May God bless the reading of His Word. We're going to take two weeks to look through this chapter of Jonah. We begin today, though, again, thinking about this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That is, salvation is His to give and can be found in no other. But what does it look like? How do you describe the salvation that comes from God? That's our task this morning as we look to our passage before us. We want to see three things about this salvation and about the God who gives it. First of all, we see this if you're taking notes. Salvation comes by God's mercy and grace. Salvation comes by God's mercy and grace. Remember the story up to this point, or if you don't know anything about this story, let me summarize for you what's going on. Verse 1, chapter 1, God calls His prophet Jonah to go and to preach in the city of Nineveh to declare God's righteous judgment against their sin, but the prophet doesn't go. The prophet doesn't want to go, and in fact, he runs in the opposite direction of his call. He gets on a boat, he pays for a fare, and he is off on his own, moving away from the direction God has called him. But God isn't yet finished with Jonah. He, in fact, stirs up this storm at sea and incites panic in the crew because the storm is so violent, the ship is threatening to break apart. Yet Jonah refuses to repent of his sin. He refuses to go back in the direction God has called him and instead allows himself and even commands that he be thrown overboard into the sea. And if you've read Moby Dick. And the sermon that that Chaplain Maple gives at this point in the story, he says, behold, Jonah taken up as an anchor and dropped in the sea. And frankly, that's a good image. Why? Because Jonah does not go into the water and kind of bob up and down trying to tread water doing the doggy paddle. He sinks like a rock. He sinks like an anchor. In his prayer, Jonah recounts uh, his situation and says to God, you cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounding me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah isn't just put in the shallow end of the pool, nor is he thrown into calm water. He is dropped out in the middle of a sea during a violent storm. He goes in the water and immediately the waves are crashing in over his head, driving him down into the vastness of the sea. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. All of this churning sea from the storm has dragged up all kinds of things, all of which are now wrapped around Jonah even as he is sinking. Sea vegetation is swirling around him. It's even around his head and in his eyes He can't breathe. He can't see. All he can do is flail around and sink farther and farther and farther into the salty depths of what is certainly to be his death. At this point, you would think this is the end for Jonah. I mean, it's done. I mean, after all, he's a disobedient prophet. And who wants that? God doesn't. God doesn't want that. He doesn't uh, deserve that. He doesn't have to tolerate this man's wretched, rebellious attitude. He should be a goner, and no one would be able to judge God for doing wrong by him if it happened. Even when you read Jonah's description of his descent into the sea, you cannot help but think, in his mind, it was pretty clear he thought he was a goner. But remember, chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer of thankfulness to God for salvation. God had had mercy on him. Verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, that is the Hebrew word for death, out of the belly of death I cried, and you heard my voice. Jonah says as he is in the sea, as he is descending towards death, what he says is that land whose bars will close around me forever, he called out to the Lord for mercy, for grace, for salvation. I find it incredibly ironic that the prophet who is running from grace in his moment of trouble, his moment of desperation, actually calls out for grace. He is running from the presence of the Lord, we're told in verse 1, and yet now he longs for, he is desperate for the presence of the Lord. What did he say in that prayer? Did he repent? Did he just beg for mercy? We don't know. All we know is he called out to the Lord, and the Lord saved him from drowning in the sea. God saved not because he was obligated to, not because it was just and good and righteous for him to save Jonah, not because Jonah deserved to be saved. No, God only saved Jonah because God is a God of mercy. Full stop. Full stop. Nothing else needs to be said. Jonah was only saved because God is a God of mercy. And it's that same God of mercy who has saved you if you are a Christian, because of your sin and rebellion against God, because of your offense against the most beautiful and glorious being in all the universe, the one who offers himself to you, and yet you turn away and say, no, thank you, I would rather have my own God, maybe even myself as God, we deserve death. And apart from God, your life was sinking towards death, and hell. Though you lived in apparent freedom, even happiness, your life was ebbing away. You were gasping your final breaths as the waves of God's wrath were crashing down upon your head. You were sinking in the mire and muck of your own undoing as the stench of death was wafting up from the position of your just condemnation under the thumb of God. And you, in that position, became the recipient of God's mercy. In love, He came down for you. To you who deserve the sentence of death that had been passed upon you for your sins, God powerfully came and through the gospel brought salvation. By His Spirit, He called you to turn away from your sin and look to His Son, to look to Jesus, the Savior who died for your sins and was raised to life again. And rather than live a life of rebellion against your King, you were called to forsake your life and to live a life of obedience to your King. And in this life-giving call, your salvation came not because you deserved it or earned it or could ever pay it back, but because God is a God of mercy and of grace. He took away what you deserved and gave you something that you would never deserve. He took away His wrath and gave you His love, His affection, His forgiveness, His very presence in your life. Not as some distant cold God, but as a heavenly Father who loves His children. Have you allowed your mind to drift on that and, to, and to, to sit on that and to be fixed on that great truth of God's mercy recently? Have you allowed your thoughts to be soaked in the sea of God's kindness and mercy towards you, dear Christian? One of my favorite preachers is C.J. Mahaney, and I find myself always encouraged when I listen to him, especially for this, that he understands the depths of God's mercy towards sinners whenever you hear him recount his testimony of how God brought him to salvation, as he describes uh, his life of sin, of, of loving sin. A man who even in the, in the moment when his, his longtime friend who's gone away to college and has become a Christian has come back to tell him the gospel, he is, he is sitting smoking hash, and yet God still in his mercy saves him through the proclamation of the gospel. Mahaney cannot help but be moved to tears. You hear the crack in his voice as he speaks, realizing that he deserved death. And yet God showed him mercy. God showed him mercy and grace. Loved ones, it's not about the number or the nature of your sins that will make you grateful for your salvation. It's not, boy, I've done a really bad thing. I've done lots of bad things. I've been horrible. I've been a miserable example of humanity. And God saved me, therefore I will be thankful. No, it doesn't come down to, the, to the, the, the quantity of your sins. Because at the end of the day, even for the smallest infraction against an infinite God, we all deserve death. We're all in the same boat, as it were, cast off into the sea of God's judgment. Rather, it is the great mercy of God that should move us to tears of gratefulness and joy. This is the salvation that we have received as God's people. A salvation of mercy and grace towards sinners. But more than that, we see the salvation of God comes by His surprising plan. Salvation comes by God's surprising plan. We saw the predicament Jonah was in. We saw the language of his prayer, lifted from the very language of the Psalms, his prayer to express thankfulness to God for the salvation given to him. Now again, in case it's just not clear yet, what is this salvation? It was salvation from drowning to death in the sea. He he was, he was, he was at death's door. He was in his final moments of life and God rescued him out of the sea. But how did he do it? They picked him up hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging, verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah was about to drown, and he called to God for help, for rescue, and of all the things that God could have done. I mean, you know, if you've read the Bible, you know, you could do a lot of different things. He has no limits. Paul says he's able to do beyond what you can possibly imagine. And of all the things he could do Dun-dun. <laughs> Dun-dun. <Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. laughs> He sends a fish. To rescue Jonah out of the water, this giant aquatic beast becomes the means of salvation for this rebellious, sinful prophet. In fact, did you notice in verse 1 of chapter 2, it's from the fish that Jonah is praying, thanking God for his salvation. Can you imagine a prayer meeting like that? Now, who could have imagined that God would do this? When he called out to God to be saved, do you think that's what Jonah expected? I mean, do, do you think he would become like Aquaman? No, 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 you know, send the fish and save me. I don't think so. I, I don't think, I don't know that Jonah even had a thought as to how it was going to happen. He just knew he wanted it to happen, that God would save him. And yet it is by this unexpected, surprising way that salvation comes to Jonah. Now, when I was in seminary, the Lord of the Rings movies were coming out and, um, uh, Uh, Some of you have heard me tell this before, but it just always, it always is so striking to me. As as these movies were were, were getting ready to come out, the promotion's happening, and you have a couple of people who are big fans, particularly at the seminary, and so this kind of buzz about these movies begins to to circulate. I heard about them, I never read the books, didn't know much about uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, series, and yet, one of the things that I kept hearing was, This thing is just one big Christian allegory. It's going to be great. It's all this spiritual truth like the Chronicles of Narnia about how to live the Christian life. And I got to thinking, how come I've never heard of this? So that's really what it is. And it just so happened that one of my professors at seminary was also my Sunday school teacher while we were in Louisville. And uh, we had been over to his house a couple times for some social things. And on his shelf, one of his bookshelves on the way out, was this big honking red leather hardcover uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy book. I mean, this thing looked like it weighed as much as a desktop computer. And I thought, if you're going to buy that thing and haul it around and pull it out and read it, you must like Lord of the Rings. So I asked him, what's the deal with the Christian allegory? I mean, is, is that really what Lord of the Rings is about? Can you, know, can you see Christ in Lord of the Rings? I mean, that's kind of the thing that I've been hearing. And what's interesting is you go back and you read the interviews and you talk to people who knew the man who wrote the Lord of the Rings books, uh, Professor Tolkien, and what you find out is that though he was great friends with C.S. Lewis, he actually was the means by which God saved C.S. Lewis and brought salvation to him. He absolutely hated the Chronicles of Narnia because he absolutely hated allegory. Especially Christian allegory. He says, you got Jesus Christ, a big lion, romping around in the woods. He goes, are you insane? And of course, you know, Lewis is like, yeah, but the kids like it, da, 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 you know, or whatever it was. And uh, all of his other friends are telling Lewis, you know, yeah, right, right, it's great. And, and Tolkien is just like beside himself. And he's writing, you know, uh, Lewis is spitting out the, these quick little books, and he's writing this mammoth tome that's supposed to be this little sequel to this little book called The Hobbit. And, and the whole point is to say, it's clear, Tolkien did not in any way mean for this to be a Christian allegory. And so I had friends saying, "Yeah, the, you know, the elves are like angels," and da, da da da. And Tolkien would have been like, "Are you are you kidding me? No, it's, it's not for that at all." And yet, and yet, Tolkien was a devout Catholic. He he and he he was a believer, and he had so he had so taken up this idea of the gospel itself that perhaps even unknowingly, it becomes layered throughout the whole storyline of the Lord of the Rings. So when I asked my professor, I said, so, so what's the deal? He said, no, there's no allegory, but, but if the gospel can be seen in Lord of the Rings, it comes in this way, salvation comes in a surprising way. Salvation comes through an unexpected means. In the books and in the movies, you have brave men, you have powerful elves, you have uh, determined dwarves, yet salvation for all of Middle Earth, the destruction of ultimate evil, comes through the smallest and apparently weakest of beings, a hobbit. A hobbit. I mean, it's just this little guy you know, likes, likes his veggies, you know, a little bit of sausage, eats like seven times a day. And, and, and no one gives him any thought, and yet here is the means by which salvation comes to Middle Earth. And you think about that, it's the same way with Jonah. Who would have ever thought a fish? I mean, this massive sea creature out in the, out in the, out in the sea that probably the Israelites might not have have actually ever seen. I mean, they were not seafaring people. Jonah may not have actually ever seen this fish or even knew about it. And yet this unexpected means of this fish brings salvation to Jonah. And frankly, it's the same with Jesus. It's the same with Jesus. Though Jonah experienced physical salvation from death, Jesus came to experience death so that his people might experience full spiritual salvation. But can you imagine, do you understand the surprising way in which that salvation was brought about? I mean, though now with the eyes of faith and clarity, because the cross and resurrection has already happened, we read through the Old Testament, we're like, yeah, yeah, there it is. The gospel, the gospel. Christ is going to come. He's going to die for the sins of the people. And yet, the there and the then, people couldn't get it. They didn't understand it. They didn't see it. I mean, they're expecting salvation to come with this great warrior king who's going to raise this army and wipe out the Romans and establish the temple and the kingdom of Israel on earth again and, and, and create peace. That's what they're looking for. And instead, Jesus comes and he's the born of this peasant Jewish carpenter out in Galilee, Hicktown. And people are saying, how can that be the Christ? How can salvation come through that man? And yet even in the prophecies, About His coming, people will say, this is exactly what it's going to be like. People are going to look at Jesus and they're not going to get it because it's so unexpected. Isaiah 53, Who has believed what He heard from us? To whom has the the, the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He, the servant, the Messiah, He grew up before God like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And one as from whom men hid their faces. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. People looked at Christ and they said, salvation can't come through that. There's no way. Even his own disciples... Could not see. The religious leaders could not see. And yet, here's the interesting thing. In Matthew chapter 12, they kind of say, well, well, look, you know, give us a sign. Just show us that you're really the Messiah. What does he say? Matthew tells us some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Can you imagine the disciples looking in horror at this man that they believed was the Messiah, this man who was their friend? Whom they'd followed for over three years, hanging, humiliated, weak, naked, bloody, and broken on a cross. Their hopes were dashed. We we, we must have got it wrong. And yet, it was in this, this unexpected, surprising way that God accomplished salvation. Jesus died not for his own sins, but for the sins of the world, John says. He came bringing salvation, not wielding a sword, destroying an army of enemies of God's people, but surprisingly by dying as a substitute under the wrath of God, destroying our real and most feared enemies, sin and death and hell. All that rebels might taste the grace of God's forgiveness. That's the surprising way in which God brings salvation, not just to Jonah, but to us through Jesus Christ. Christ. The salvation that we see from God is one that is rooted in His grace and mercy. It comes in a surprising way. But finally, we also see that salvation comes by God's sovereign hand. Salvation comes by God's sovereign hand. So what about the fish? What about that fish? If you ask any kid, probably most adults, what's Jonah about? A man gets swallowed by a fish. That's going to be the answer, right? Or at least part of the answer. And that's okay, but that invariably leads to this question so, is the story true? Does this really happen? This guy really gets swallowed by a fish? I mean, that's the question we want to know. In fact, um, some will go so far as to say, well, obviously, the story is a work of fiction. It's meant to be an extended parable about Israel's unwillingness to go to the nations. And on some level, I have to say, yeah, they're right. It serves, Jonah serves as a parable for Israel, even as Hosea served as a parable of God and his wife a parable of Israel. But guess what? Doesn't mean it didn't happen. Doesn't mean it's fiction. You read the other fictional parables in the Bible, Jesus told lots of them, and guess what? Number one, they're never this long. They're never this involved. They're never this detailed. And there's never specific characters, except for maybe Lazarus and the rich man. But there's a question about that one. My point is, it doesn't read like fiction. It reads like Old Testament, New Testament, historical narrative. Secondly, though, even beyond that, you say, I'm still not convinced. That's okay, because guess what? Historically, it's been proven it's possible to survive in the belly of certain kinds of fish, specifically sperm whales, the old Encyclopedia Britannica used to give all kinds of information on this, telling us that the average specimen of a certain kind of sperm whale might have a mouth, listen to this, a mouth 20 foot long, 15 foot high, and 9 foot wide. That's larger than my office back there. Do you understand that? I mean, that's, that's huge. I could fit my whole family in there, not that I would want to. It's known that the sperm whale largely feeds on squid, which are often larger than people. More importantly, though, there is a reliable historical account of this happening. In February 1891, the whaling ship Star of the East spotted a large sperm whale, again, all from Encyclopedia Britannica. A large sperm whale in the vicinity of the Falkland Islands. Two boats were launched to go after this thing. One of the harpooners in one of the boats was able to spear the whale... But the second boat, when it attempted to spear the whale also, the boat capsized. One man was drowned, another man was lost, and the whale escaped. The man that was lost, James Bartley, disappeared and could not be found. The other man, they recovered his dead body. It was a short time later, the whale was found again. This time it was harpooned, it was killed, it was drawn to the side of the ship, and originally just its blubber was removed. The next day, however, they hoisted the stomach on deck, and when it was open, guess what was inside? Bartley. The missing sailor, unconscious but alive. Encyclopedia says eventually he was revived by seawater. I have no idea what that means or how seawater revives anybody. I've been told not to drink seawater, so go figure. After a time, though, listen to this, he resumed his duties on board the whaling vessel. How do you like that? You get swallowed by a fish and spend the night there, and it's like, hey, back to work, you old solder in your keep. I mean, give me a break. My whole point is this. Yes, it's possible scientifically, historically, that this could happen. But can I tell you this? That is completely irrelevant to our text. It is absolutely, completely irrelevant for our text. My old pastor, Glenn Davidson, used to say, look, even if the book said Jonah swallowed the whale, we should believe it because God said it. Now let's assume for a minute we didn't know about the Star of the East. We didn't know about uh that kind of sperm whale we didn't know that it is possible guess what why can't god just do a miracle isn't this the same god who created the whole use out of nothing you know it's not like he had matter and energy lying around and said this looks fun maybe i'll put something together with it no he just spoke and not only created it but had the amazing creativity the intelligence the wisdom to put it together in the way that he did isn't this the same God who brought about a worldwide flood and yet rebuilt His creation? The same God who caused a hundred-year-old couple to be able to conceive and bear a son? The same God who sent supernatural plagues on the entire nation of Egypt, yet spared His people? The same God who held back the waters of the Red Sea? Who also brought down the walls of a major city called Jericho with the mere yell of an army? A man, a God who through men healed sickness and disease? is this not the same God God who took a man who was dead in the grave for three days and raised him up back to life, not just physically to life, but spiritually glorified with a body that would be been fit for all eternity. You might know him. His name is Jesus Christ. We worship him as Savior, God and King of all things. Surely if the same God could do that he could preserve the life of one man in the belly of a whale for three days. Am I missing something here? More than that. More than that. The whole point isn't even about the fish. It's about God. God is completely sovereign over all His creation. Yes, even over fish. But here's the the thing. Notice what the text says. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. If you go to King James, they actually get the verbal tense here better from the original Hebrew. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. The best translation would be to put the two together. and It sound like this. The Lord had appointed a great fish. What's my point? The fish was waiting for Jonah. I mean, think about that. God knew the prophet's going to run. He knew he's going to send the storm. He knew he was going to get thrown overboard. And guess what? He wasn't waiting for Jonah to ask for mercy. He had appointed the fish to be at the right longitude, the right latitude, the right depth for at the last minute to show his mercy and kindness to the prophet and to save him from drowning in the sea. The point is not the fish. The point is God. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson says, the fish is just a walk-on character in this drama of redemption. The story is about the great God from whom salvation comes. As it is with Jonah, this amazing, merciful, surprising God has also ordained the circumstances of our very life to show mercy and grace to us. I just found this new website from a church in New York City. I can't remember what it's called now. I think it's called... uh, born-again portraits or something, I don't know. But anyway, i post the link on Facebook. Go, go there and look. The whole point is they have testimonies of how people came to faith in Christ. So it was amazing you have this, uh, this young professional architect and, and, and her life is, is being shattered and rocked by, uh, by illness and by all these uh, loss of job and all these things. She gets hired onto this firm and guess what they do? They, they relocate a block in downtown New York City. Well, I don't know if you've ever been to the big city. Basically, that that reframes your whole life. All those little businesses you used to, 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 to walk to and stuff, now everything shifts down a whole city block which is a lot bigger than Bay City City Blocks, just in case you didn't know that. And she says she goes to this place and she winds up meeting this guy who turns out to be her husband, who turns out to bring her to uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, who turns out to be the means by which she not only uh, has uh, companionship for life, but a husband, the father of her child, and the means by which God brings salvation to this woman's life. And what, what, what did he do? All he did was, was have her corporation move one block down in the city. This is the kind of God that we serve. A God who does not leave things to chance, who doesn't leave the salvation of His people up to the whims and, and, and wistfulness of, of, uh, of sinners and their decision making. Here is a God who sovereignly ordains to bring grace and mercy in the exact time and moment that His people needed that they might be saved. This morning... In almost every way, Jonah's salvation is a small but clear echo of the salvation provided through Christ. In Christ, we have received grace and mercy for salvation. Christ has taken upon himself our sin and he has given to us his righteousness. We did not deserve that in any way. In Christ, we have seen the surprising way in which salvation is achieved. It was appointed through weakness and through obscurity. And, and this, this humbling of God who took on flesh to identify with us, that atonement for sins was made. And in Christ, we also see the sovereign hand of God moving around every component of our life so that we can hear His gospel and believe. Friends, I'm I, I almost guaranteed that in a room this size, there is somebody here who has never looked to faith in Christ. Whether you've been going to this church for decades or whether you're here visiting as a little kid, you have never been gripped by the absolute sinfulness of your heart in disobeying God and the fact that you deserve an eternal death because of that. And yet God has provided Christ. He has provided His own Son who took the punishment for you so that when you look to Him in faith, believing that He died for your sins, when you, try, when you stop living just for whatever you want to live for, And as Jesus says, you deny yourself and you lose your life for His sake. Guess what? He gives you back a better life. And you find joy in loving God who saves you and in obeying Him with your life. If you have never trusted in Christ, then then today can be the day of your salvation. Call out to God, even as Jonah did, and say, God, I want your mercy. I need your grace. I want the love that you say you have for sinners. I need Jesus to be my Savior for the rest of us. This morning, I hope that the salvation that we have has not become old and stale and passé. It's not, oh yeah, here's the gospel message again. If that is the case we'll find ourselves moving farther and farther away from God, unhappy, unjoyful, unwilling to serve Him. It's only when we have been gripped by our devastating plight before Him and the amazing love that He has shown to us. When we remember that, when we rejoice in that, that we will be all the more encouraged to love Him more deeply. And in loving Him more deeply, our lives will be changed. Look at that quote from John Owen in your bulletin under the preparing for worship. And he is clear that what we need is to more and more see the beauty and the glory of Christ that we might love Him more deeply so that sin becomes this ugly, disgusting, unthinkable thing. We will love sin far less if we love God far more. And the way we do that is by seeing the salvation that belongs to Him that He has given to us. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for that salvation. God, it is so easy when we have lived as your people for years and years and years to grow cold and indifferent. But God, I pray that you would not let that happen, that you would grip our hearts, both by the sinfulness of our sin and the glory of your grace. That, Father, we would be broken and ground down to the dust only to be remade, by your love into the image of Christ. God, only you can do this. We cannot screw up more love. We cannot cause ourselves in any way to be more holy. God, it only comes as a work from you, a spiritual work by your word. Father, open our eyes. Help us to see Jesus and be changed. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.